The Dark Word is a podcast about writing, writers, and those who read those writers. The goal of this podcast is to focus on the profession of writing, whether it be the creative process, the business side of things, or simply offering advice on how to be a pro. We'll be hearing from some of the best in the business over the upcoming episodes. And true to our name, The Dark Word focuses on writers who tend to hang out in the shadowy side of the room. These are the names you think of when you hear horror, suspense, noir, the names who have chilled you and thrilled you. So follow me down this dark hallway because there's someone I'm dying for you to meet. Dying for you to meet. Dying. And welcome to the dark word. After some technical difficulties, uh, <laughs> I have arrived on the scene, and I am just so excited uh, to introduce today's guest. Uh, Ramsey Campbell was born in Liverpool in 1946 and still lives on Merseyside. I'm probably butchering that. The Oxford Companion to English Literature describes him as Britain's most respected living horror writer. He has been given more awards than any other writer in the field, including the Grand Master Award of the World Horror Convention, the Lifetime Achievement Award of the Horror Writers Association, the Living Legend Award of the International Horror Guild, and the World Fantasy Lifetime Achievement Award. In 2015, he was made an honorary fellow of Liverpool John Moores University for outstanding services to literature. He is the author of more than 30 novels and hundreds of short stories. Among his novels are The Face That Must Die, Midnight Sun, the Darkest Part of the Woods, The Grin of the Dark, and more recent titles include Think Yourself Lucky, 13 Days by Sunset Beach, and The Wise Friend. His latest, which you can pick up right now from Flame Tree Publishing, is Fellstones. Um, Ramsey, thank you so much for being here, sir. My pleasure, Philip. My pleasure. <laughs> and thank you for putting up with my technical difficulties. So I have a lot I want to talk to you about. I have extensive questions, so I'm going to try and like push through as best we can. So I want to talk, let's start, because I'd always like to start talking about your break-in moment, your first publishing moment. And I read, and this, uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, I read that your first, first publication was in 1962, and it was for an anthology called Dark Mind, Dark Heart. That's it was right. a story called The Church in High Street. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were 16 years old when you sold that story, is that correct? It is, it is. Well, I, well, technically, I think it was probably 15 or just getting on for 16. That's right. I mean, what happened was this. Um, I, I, I fell in love with Lovecraft when I was 14. I mean, believe it or not, in 1960, uh, there had been no single paperback collection of Lovecraft ever published in Britain. So when the first one came out, which was Cry Horror, which was actually a facsimile or, you know, uh, of an American collection edited, I think, by Don Walheim for Avon originally, uh, you know, I, I, I grabbed it, snapped it up, spent the entire next day reading it and was immersed in Lovecraft completely. And I started writing pastiches of Lovecraft, having, you know, already done years of, of, of kind of haphazard stuff that, that did, was not so focused on a particular model. And, um, these were purely for my own pleasure. I mean, I had no thought at all of seeing them into print. Um, a, a fan correspondent of mine, Pat, Pat Kearney, now, now a noted historian of, of erotica in particular, um, was editing a fanzine then in London called Gaudi, and we, 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 were, we were corresponding. And he, having got wind of the fact that I'd written these stories, asked if he could read them, and then proceeded to publish one. So technically speaking, my first 
publication was when I was 50 in, in Pat's fanzine. Um, he and one of his readers, Betty Kujawa, then suggested I should send them off to August to Derleth, you know, he, he being the, the world authority on Lovecraft at that time, yeah. because Lovecraft made to publish her at Arkham House. And again, this was purely, you know, dear Mr. Durlis, uh, you know, I just wondered if you could tell me what, if these stories are any good. Now, not, not one thought of publication. Durlis asked to see them, partly because, you know, he felt that, you know, the, the well, the, this is a controversial thing, I know, but the Darkham House owned the, the, the say-so on, on whether people could use the Lovecraft mythos or not. Um, I, I duly sent, typed them out, sent them over to him. And got this letter back saying, you know, these stories did a lot of work, which Lord knows they certainly did. Um, but if you, if you, you know, if you do the editorial work that I'm going to suggest to you and write more stories along these lines, enough for a book, uh, we think we might have an Arkham House book here. Well, you know, 15 years old, that's pretty fighting talk. And I, having picked myself up, I, I set about doing the editorial work that he suggested. Um, sent in this story. He asked me then uh, for a short story that he could use as a kind of trailer to the book that he hoped to publish. And I, I, I then sent him the story. That was, it was then called The Tomb Herd, actually. Um, he changed the title, and, and uh, in the contract he sent me, basically, he had carte blanche to edit the story. And so he did kind of, uh, well, I mean, he, he pasted it up a bit and, 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 and boiled down some uh, sections of the story, but it's fundamentally mine. And so, as you say, you know, I was 16 years old, alongside the likes, you know, heroes of my youth like Robert Block. So uh, that, that was certainly my breakthrough. Two years later, my first book from Arkham House. Uh, yeah, that's amazing because... I can't even Im I can't even imagine basically right throwing a hail mary of like well geez let's just see if he even likes the stuff mm -hmm. and then he to accepting a story and then actually offering you a book deal is kind of must have been blown you away as a kid oh indeed indeed, indeed. but I mean, it's, it's interesting isn't it you know there's, there's this kind of a history because Dirth himself was published at about the same age in Weird Tales. So was Robert Block, you know. Um, so, you know, maybe it's something that goes with the field in some I just don't know. Maybe it's the continuity of Weird Tales that, that I'm carrying on. Yeah, and so it's interesting. You mentioned that, and this is something I wanted to ask you about. You mentioned that it was primarily pastiche in the early days, the Lovecraftian pastiche. And, and I kind of want to intertwine this with another question, which is I, you've also mentioned that your writing style has changed a lot over the over the last several decades. Mm -hmm. And I, and I know you have different I know you have different styles for different types of books and I understand that. But at what point um you know I, I, I I'm quoting you from an interview I read. At one point you said I was determined to sound like myself. And I think you're trying to break out of the pastiche and make it basically become homage. And what was the process of that like finding your in other words finding your voice, which is something I harp on a lot on this show. You know, at what point do you feel you found your voice? Because you started so young, and I can't even I can't even fathom it. I mean, I didn't really start publishing till I was my forties. So, uh -huh. um, so how, what was that like, and, and how did that how did your voice develop over time? Well, you see, that another one fed in really. I mean, in, in a way, though, even in that very first book, The Inhabitant of the Lake, you can see me kind of, you know, experimenting with stuff. The sure. experiments are not very successful. But I mean, there is one story called The Will of Stanley Brook, 
which is written in almost entirely in dialogue and in completely neutral prose. There's no atmospheric stuff in it at all. Um, that was a deliberate attempt, you know, to see what happens if you do this. And it's something I've done really throughout, you know, off and on throughout my career. Try, try to identify something that I, I depend on and see what happens if I do without it uh, for, for the length of the story, you know. So, um, I mean, the, a more recent one is a story uh, written a couple of decades ago now, I suppose, called A Street Was Chosen, which is a report of a... Of, a, of an experiment uh, uh, in terms of you know, psychological uh, programming of an entire street full of people. Um, and the, 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 the nature of the experiment becomes apparent only from, you know, hints within the report itself. But the point is, it's written entirely in the passive voice and mm -hmm. with no names for the characters. Again, I was trying to do without, you know, do without absolutely everything I could in terms of what I normally do as a writer. But anyway, to go back to, to your, your question, um, as I say, you know, the, even that first book, there was beginning to move away, not so much toward myself, because it still doesn't read much like me now, but, you know, a, a bit away from simply pastiching Lovecraft and trying to apply different, different methods, you know, to Lovecraftian themes. Now, it, extraordinary, this is a pure coincidence, I, I, I actually just pretty well just finished writing the last story in that first book of mine. And I was just turning 17, and I discovered Vladimir Nabokov, specifically Lolita, um, which, you know, in those days was a kind of a, a naughty, well, it's still in the way, but, you know, it was, it was a sort of not quite forbidden book, but, uh, you know, a naughty book, a, a, a daring book, among many other things. And to be honest, that's why I bought it, you know, being an adolescent. But... I mean, I'd hardly read a couple of pages when I, I, I you know, I, it was apparent to me there's so much more here than that, you know, the, the use of language, the use of structure, the use of comedy uh, yeah. in, ter in terms of a, a most unlikely theme. And it showed me just how much more you could do, you know, with fiction. And that was the turning point, I think. Uh, you know, the first one was Lovecraft, the second one was Nabokov. And I actually think that probably the next story I wrote which is still Lovecraft in a story called The Stone on the Island. It, it, it's, it's much more playful in its language. There's, there's, it, it's, there's, there's much more looseness of approach, if you like, even though it still uses a sort of Lovecraftian, you know, classical horror story structure. The language has changed radically. And from that point onward, I began, I think, to, to develop. Um, and, well, really, you know, um, it was probably opened me up to, to more experimentation as well. So the voice came gradually out of that. It wasn't so much that ultimately as I imposed a voice on the fiction, as a trying to make my, I think this is what I tend to believe, that it's make, trying to make yourself clear that develops your style. It's, you know, it's, it's trying to find the right word. That's where your style, your voice comes out of. And eventually, because I'd also find my own themes, you know, rather than just imitating Lovecraft, that's where all that came from gradually. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, themes and voice, and, you know, using, you said using words and phrasing. Uh, I think, you know, you talked about phrasing and imagery being uh, such an important thing. But I want to talk about reading for a second because, uh, you know, we, as you, we all hear as writers that you, especially as new writers and Stephen King likes to say it is you got to read and you have to read widely. Yeah. And I think it's a lot of writers don't fully understand why that's important. And I think you kind of hit it on the head with the Nabokov uh, mm -hmm. because it, it, because it shows you doors or it opens doors, I should say yes. uh, that you may not have even known existed. And that the things you can do with fiction and writing 
is staggering. I talk about voices, uh, unique voices in fiction, uh, like, and I always mention Laird Barron because mm. he has such a unique voice that when you read his work, it's like it's unlike reading anything else. He just has a different. It just is. It just feels different. It's it, it reads different, and uh, and and I think when that's a big part of reading. Well, like, what other authors would you say inspired your writing over the years? Because you've 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 obviously been doing it for a long time. Are there any other writers that stand out? I'm curious if you've read or, ever read uh, J.P. Dunleavy. You know, The Ginger Man. I know was um, a big book. Of, kind of on the a little later than Lolita. But are there any other writers who you would? point out to say these are the writers who i read and i was like open doors for your imagination as to what could be done with fiction yes i would say, well but on the well, one one within the field one without actually um, because i I'd, I'd already read mr james back in my, my my very early days i mean by, by heavens i was reading him when i was six years old and eventually uh, you know bought the collected stories of ghost stories of when i was probably about 11 12 years old um, but but he didn't have an immediate um, influence. But late, but it was again. You see, it was Derleth who said uh, basically that I, uh, I was in those early, very early stories that I sent him. You know, I was imitating the bits of Lovecraft that seemed to be easiest to imitate. To say the, the purple prose, of which there is not a great deal in Lovecraft. That's a myth. You know, his prose is very much more carefully modulated and built up to than that. And when you do get these, you know, these metaphorical passages of the you know the almost poetic prose that they, they, they you know they're, they're they're the result of the rest of the story um whereas you know too many people certainly me you know uh, used to imitate those bits throughout the story which of course isn't how you should do it at all okay admittedly Lovecraft did that occasionally himself but he mainly did not um, so James, it was Durth who suggested I should read, reread M.R. James for, for reticence and you know, gradual build-up and, and, you know, um, again, kind of holding back the style until, until the moment when, when, it, when it's most powerful. And, of course, I mean, James had an absolute genius for, well, basically, the, the, the phrase that's, that suggests more than most of us can do in a sentence or even a, a paragraph. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the, the, well, I mean, anybody who's listening who's not read Omar James, go and do so by all means, because you'll be you, you'll be richly rewarded. by I mean, just his use of language alone is 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 worth the price of admission. And the other writer outside the field um, who was crucial to me was Graham Greene. Um, mm-hmm. Brighton Rock was the first I read, and again, that was just a revelation. You know, the the kind of vividness of of, of uh, the, the the detail and his, his eye for the telling detail, the, the the image that sums up so much, um, and 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 the, the the kind of sense of of everyday life um, that that again fed hugely into the way that I wrote, and I mean I guess there's. Um, I mean, I suppose there's, well, the, the, some of those early stories in my second book, Demons by Daylight, probably show that influence most obviously. But then I, I've, I've kind of subsumed most of this, I think. I mean, I still you know, go back to the, well, I think the, the preoccupations I still have in common with these, these favourites. But um, by now, they, one hopes that what happens, you know, just as with Lovecraft, you know, he kind of unites the, the British and American traditions of supernatural fiction, weird fiction, up to the point at which he's writing. Um, you know, I think maybe what happens is you take in the, the writers you most like into yourself, and then they, they kind of germinate something new, or you, you hope they do. 
Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. I think you do, frankly, I think yours, you kind of had a crossover of the American style and the English style as well. You know, you write, um, you know, you write stuff that uh, I, I know that it's, you know, one of the things that you've talked about in the past is you talk about, uh, you know, scaring people internally, you know, it, it, you know, yeah. using psychological horror. And I think of what some people refer to as quiet horror, like a la, um, say, you know, Aikman, Robert Aikman. Yes. But, but I think that you also, but you're also got that like Herbert flair, right? You do, you, you're, you're happy to stomp around a little bit and create some and create some damage and and some visceral horror as well right well, yeah. and so i think it's an inter- it's, it's, it's you're an interesting hybrid that i think is very unique and um and i was going to say what about i'm just curious this is just a me question but algernon blackwood was that was he someone who inspired you early on because i'm such a big fan of his work Yes, not immediately, but certainly later on. I mean, I, I think it would be fair to say, actually, now you mentioned these things, that, you know, um, in, in, I, I, I probably, as I, in a way, as I got more, uh, you know, comfortable with what I was doing myself, I was more able to try um, doing, you know, not, 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 I think, imitations, but homages to, to favourites. And I mean, actually, also, I'll, I'll go to Blackwood in just a moment, but, but also, you know, the old EC comics. I mean, I did a, a bunch of stories in 1974, which are all of them about, you know, under 2,000 words long. Call First is, seems to, is constantly being reprinted, seems to be a favourite, um, which, you know, is basically uh, using relatively uh, you know, recognizable um, figures from horror fiction and with a, some kind of a kicker in the, in the final paragraph. Um, and I enjoyed doing those. They, 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 they sort of felt like a, you know, doing something new or releasing myself into something new. Blackwood I absolutely love. I mean, uh, yeah. the, the Willows is one of my all-time favorite supernatural horror stories. It's an absolute masterpiece. And I've certainly done the occasional story that attempts to, you know, to do Blackwood's kind of um, kind of fiction. I mean, the, I suppose the, probably the most obvious is a novel called Midnight Sun, which um, I think has a certain, you know, Blackwoodian feel to it. Um, I used to regard it as an honourable sort of, a, an honourable failure because it didn't, you know, reach the heights I was aiming for. But I've, I've come to feel, well, you know, in its own terms, it, 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 it brings off some, some of that sense of, of awe, you know, sense of actual supernatural awe, awesomeness. Um, and the other great favourite, well, there are many, and you certainly cited Aitman as being one, um, would be Arthur Macken, and specifically uh, The White People, which I think is possibly the greatest story in, in my experience of the field. I mean, I, I think it's unique and, you know, nobody else has done it that way. I mean, it, 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 I mean that, we're talking about finding a new voice. I mean, the voice of the, of the story within that story, you know, the, 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 the green book, is, is unlike anything else in literature as far as, far as I know. And I, again, I, I've had the occasional attempt to, 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 to well, you know, to do a, a kind of uh, tribute, the story called um, The Place of Revelation, which uses that sort of naive voice, you know, which is what I think is crucial to that Mackin story. That, that, uh, and also what you might call the, not, not the unreliable narrator, but the unaware narrator, you know, the... The narrator is telling us things that she is not herself aware of, um, but, but simply by, by the way she tells it. I mean, um, I suppose one, grabbing just, just thinking aloud here, one great recent instance of that is uh, Ishiguro's novel, uh, Never Let Me Go. 
which again, yeah. like, you know, it's, it's a classic instance of a, a horror story that's horrifying precisely because the narrator doesn't see the horror of what, what you know, she's describing about her own situation. Um, and I think that works extremely well. Yeah, it brings to mind yellow wallpaper a little bit. I, I think in what mm. you're describing is just like that underlying madness that we see as the reader, but the characters don't yes. aren't seeing. Yes. Um, and I, I, so this this amazing thing that I read about uh, that you you were talking about in another interview where you said, um, and you were quoting a, a critic, and you were talking about how writer and i think this is really true today more than anything and i know you're a big fan of like spider punk and modern horror and some of the more visceral horror that's out there but i think that you you made a comment about striving for fear and achieving only disgust and, and uh-huh. that one, and you know, and and i thought that was such an interesting take because yeah. and and <laughs> it was your exact word that i'm sorry i'm not putting words in your mouth but this is what i read where like sometimes when you strain for terror you create nothing but a, like a disgusting dump, and you're you're trying for all, but you're, and you're not, but you're just achieving a mess. And I think that was so interesting because you talk about a lingering disquiet, mm-hmm. and you know, I if, from a style perspective, how do you find the balance of creating visceral horror and but doing it in a way that strikes readers internally versus battering them over the you know over the head with a, a meaty, bloody mallet. Oh, well, I think that goes back to the M. L. James thing. You see, I think I think it's yeah. a, it's sort of restraint. It's it's not not so much what you're you're depicting as how you depict it. And I think it's a question of showing just enough. You know, I, I will if if the story requires violence or you know graphic horror, then I'll do it, but only to the extent that it seems to be necessary. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm not one to indulge in, in, in detail particularly. Um, I think, again, it comes back to, you know, the telling detail. I mean, I, I think, um, I mean, what a, a, a great instance of, of well, not, I mean, I suppose possibly technically splatterpunk or, or certainly, you know, allied with that area, but early Poppy Z Bright, something like Drawing Blood, you know? Again, there's, there's real visceral horror in that, but, but it, it's, it's there just long enough to make its point. You know, it's not, it's not wallowed in. I think that's the difference. Yeah, I think you could make the same argument for Clive Barker, right? Like he's like you think of Clive Barker, and you think of uh, obviously everyone thinks of you know his more graphic, uh, you know, kind of violent, uh, you know, bloody, you know, stuff. But he, but he is a way of also getting under your skin in a disquieting way that's not necessarily obvious. I mean, do you agree with that? He seems like he seems like a cat who can kind of do it on both levels. Oh, I absolutely so, and, and indeed so with Poppy Z, you know. And in fact, but I think what both of those have, and this is interesting, I think, is that it's it's not it's graphic, but it's, it's simultaneously lyrical, which yeah. is a, it's a relatively unusual. But um, it, it it seems to particularly to come from that generation, I think. Well, you also don't have to substitute good prose. You know, mm-hmm. it's like you can have. You should have, you know, both. Like you can have the visceral horror, but you can also you can also write it in such a way that, for one, it's it reads beautifully or it reads well and cleanly. And also, um, let's talk a little bit more about that. So, again, how do you? How would one? T- I mean, how, this is an impossible question to answer, but how would one get into? How do you? Can you pinpoint a way that you write that you, you're thinking about? This is me. This is me drilling into the back of the reader's brain right now and slipping in the black 
the black ale. <laughs> well, no, I'm, you say I'm doing it to myself. I'm never really thinking of the reader in that that director fashion. Um, if it doesn't engage my imagination, I, don't, I can't imagine to be you know engage anybody else's. I mean, weirdly enough, that's not always true. There have been stories of mine that I actually thought, well, you know, this is this is pretty tired stuff. You know, I just I'm not very interested in this. I'll just get it over with and, and write something else. You know, and. That story, the one that I hadn't much time for, you know, turns out to be popular. It turns out to, you know, to to, to affect people. So I can't. I, I I learned long ago, in fact, that you you can't control the reader's response. And so I've I've basically decided I won't do that. What I will try and do, obviously, is write as well as I possibly can and engage as fully as I possibly can with the material. Um, but then I just put it out there and hope that. You know, it reaches people in some way, but um, I mean, you'll know this. You know, let's I mean, let's say for example, a, a book group. You know, a book group discussing a book, and you'll get you know you'll get as many different viewpoints as there are people who've read it. So you know, clearly, you can't control how people consume your fiction, and um, in a way, that's the exciting part, or one exciting part of the process. Yeah, it's funny. Well, you just go to any Goodreads or Amazon and you'd see, you know, one reader's got a five star and one reader's got a one star of the exact mm. same cover story. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, you mentioned um, uh, there's one thing I want to kind of address with uh, what you sort of said is, you don't, you know, scaring inward is one thing. And but you, you you've you've used the term uh, comedy of paranoia and mm. and 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 you've uh, mentioned that it's sort of like we're tra- we're all traveling on the edge of of madness and madness mm-hmm. either in the world or madness in the character. Can you, um, do you still do, do you still write with that sort of, or are there some, are there some, uh, books or stories that you write where you are kind of thinking like, this is going to be a, a comedy of paranoia or do you kind of let the story dictate sort of the tone in a way? Absolutely, the latter. It's a story. It's the story that does it. I mean, this is because that's what exactly what happened to me um, when. I mean, you know, there's always been a kind of a little bit of dark humour in in this or that story of mine from very early on. Um, but the one that was extraordinary, it was, it, it was a sort of like a, a release into something new. Uh, was a, was a novella that I wrote. Oh, back in. Would have been 1990 or so, I think, called Needing Ghosts. And um, I, I, I was coming up here to my desk where I'm from, where, you know, where I'm speaking to you right now, um, in the morning. And I, I, I had the, uh, the, the I, I mean, I don't plot in advance. I haven't done that for a very long time. And I gather a lot of material. And then, you know, once it feels as if it's reached kind of critical mass and I've got to do it, I'll start. And with, with, with Needing Ghosts, I mean, I was just a so three, maybe four days into the writing. And things began to suggest themselves that were weirder and stranger and more surreal, if you like, than, than I'd had in mind to write. So I, I basically I thought, well, what do I do now? Well, you know, what can you do except follow where it leads, which I duly did. And I was coming up here to the desk every morning and basically it was like transcribing a dream. It's like dreaming onto the page. And I've never, it's as if the subconscious was being directly released 
you know, into my writing. And I was actually going at it only just fast enough to keep up with, with, with what it was inventing. And it made me laugh a lot. So, you know, this was, this was to some extent whether, and again, I, I was, you know, I, there was probably a project which I thought, you know, <laughs> what, is, this, is, this, is this horror, is this comedy? Well, you know, it is what it is. Um, and that was immediately followed by a book, a novel called The Count of Eleven, which I planned to be basically about, you know, uh, an ordinary guy who is who is basically you know economic conditions and the like have got so much on top of him that he begins to crack and he begins to imagine that you know that, that there's um, there's a way he can he can he can he can save himself and his family from from economic disaster. Well, you know, of course, this is delusory. The thing was, again, only into about chapter two of it, I thought. This has turned into a comedy, you know. This is what, what am I doing here? You know, this is making me laugh. Well, all I could do is kind of laugh some more and 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 carry on writing. And actually, there was one review of this. This is one of my favourite reviews. And this, the the, the line was, um, if Stan Laurel had been a serial killer, this might have been the story. Now that you know, um, that's a great, that's a great I, review. Yeah. Absolutely, yes. As a as a Laurel and Hardy freak myself, you know, I, I very much value that. And I suppose that was those those two were kind of a not so much a turning point as as a kind of expansion of what had already been kind of implicit in some earlier stuff, but now. Um, it was a lot more developed, and I think I, I won't I won't try and guide it away from comedy. If it's if it you know if it's going to make if it makes me laugh, then it stays in. I, and I, I don't make the distinction. I don't want comic relief. But to me, there's often there is a kind of you know um, interdependence, if you like, of comedy and horror. Or, or comedy and paranoia, you know. Um, I mean, Lord knows, I can't claim to have in, it, invented this. I suppose if we if we want to look at the possibly the the inventor would be would be Kafka, you know, with the trial and so forth. But uh, which apparently, you know, because whenever he used to read his work to his friends, apparently he used to laugh immoderately throughout. So there you go. He meant it as a comedy, and in a way, I just hope more people laugh at what I do. Yeah, it's kind of like that laughter that is almost like on the brink, of, on the brink of madness. It's dark mm -hmm. humor, right? You're laughing at how almost insane it all is in a way. I would imagine. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, so let's dig into that. There's so much you just said that I want to unpack. But um, but what what I want to ask first about is okay. So you know, everyone always lo loves to ask the you know panther versus plotter question, and I thought your approach, at least what I read, and you can correct me, what I thought was really fascinating is you um, you're big on kind of letting the letting the story sort of build up. You, you, you make a lot of notes, you have your notebooks of, for your novels and yeah. you kind of like let the, all the ideas sort of build and build and build and build. And then you just kind of like, when it seems to, and this is me kind of like putting my own spin on what I read. And it's like, it just seems like you get to a point where it's like, okay, now this thing is ready to go, like ready to pop. And then you just kind of like go. Right. Yeah. And, and you don't, you don't, you even like your novels, you're not a big outliner. Correct me if I'm wrong. You just kind of like you have, but you have all this material, gathered and it's all kind of fodder for for your creation is that is that about how, about right how you how you approach yeah, it? That, that is pretty well exactly it and eventually you know i'll i'll there will come the day when i i, I think okay I've, I've composed the first sentence because that's one thing i always do i always compose at least the first sentence before i ever sit down at the desk to write you know that's 
so you don't have that horrible black page staring back at you. You've got something to start with. Um, I mean, I'm not, I mean, with a novel in particular, with short stories too, but particularly with a novel, you know, I, I, I have worked out the order of the early events, you know, although even that may change, but I have, an in, you know, some sense of, of the, the early structure of the story. And then as we go on, it will generate its own structure, very often not the structure I was expecting. But I'm, you know, I, I really like logic of plot. I really like things to happen for a reason. Um, but by the same token, uh, the, the more you've written that you haven't plotted in advance, of course, the more that may um, suggest you know, further developments that you did not know were there. But, but they, they, it would always kind of, it would always subsume the material that I've had in advance, but, they, it, but that, that may very well take on a different form once it takes its place in the narrative. But, you know, I mean, the, the trade-off is sometimes you feel you know, you're stuck out in the middle of nowhere, no idea how you got there, no idea where you're going. But I always find on that in those cases that, there's something earlier on in the narrative that I put in that I thought was just a kind of, you know, background detail or yes. uh, that, that, that is now the seed of what I need to do next and that the, the solution is back there somewhere and I just need to find it. And, well, so far I have. That's so fascinating because I was talking to, I, I, I think it was Catriona Ward and uh-huh. uh, for the podcast and she, and she's a wonderful person we had we we were at world fantasy together and just just went out drinking every night and had so much fun but she <laughs> um but she talked she and I talked about this which is your subconscious plants things that you don't even know why they're mm. there until later on in the story and what feels like an organic journey you're like oh now that thing that i put yeah. in earlier actually makes sense to what I, where I'm going, but I didn't know it at the time. So is that something that you feel happens? Like you're sub, I know that you kind of like like to go. You let yourself sub your subconscious sort of take the reins when you're writing. And it, is that something that has happened to you in the past? Absolutely, yes, quite often. And I think you know, I'm also I also have this feeling that you know, if you if you if I, while I'm telling this story about these characters, my subconscious is up to something else, and it's putting in other elements that I may not necessarily be aware of at the time. You know, thematic things and and, and echoes and resonances that you know that 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 that. Um, that, that form their own structure within the narrative that I will notice later on in the rewrite or, you know, or, or even proofreading. I'll say, oh, good Lord, I did that and I didn't even notice. I mean, that's part of the part of the fun of the activity, I think. Yeah. And okay. So I want to hit two things real quick. I want to talk about characters because I think that's a big part of what we're talking about. And, if, and you've said in the past, even though your narratives are organic in a lot of, and, and again, please correct me if I'm putting words in your mouth, but it seems to me from what I've read that, you kind of let your, and I do this too. You kind of, once you have your story sort of germinating in your mind, you kind of wait to see if anybody walks, like for, the way I explain it to people is like, once I have an acorn of an idea, I kind of wait to see if anybody walks through the door and uh-huh. sort of starts play acting. And then the, if, if, if characters begin to grow out of that idea, then I know I've got something. And mm. And then I kind of let the characters, even though I, I I am a big outliner, I do like the, I do let the characters sort of control the story. I don't try and control the characters overly. Is it, so I know characters is a big thing with you in the creation of characters, and is that similar? Do you have that kind of feeling where like you're like okay, you have all these ideas written down, you're kind of had the idea for the story, you're, it's sort of germinating, and then it's like okay, now now these characters are beginning to live and breathe, and let's see what they do. 
Yes, that's right. And I mean, uh, I, you know, I, I, I mean, that's, of course, because we, we all know that ghastly limbo that um, the early stages of, of, of composing a novel where, you know, you don't know what the names of the characters are, you don't know what they do, you know, and all that stuff. But once that, once, I mean, that, that, that usually speaking for me, the, the, what, what the characters do in life comes out of the, to some extent, out of the requirements of the narrative. So, you know, it will need to be relevant in some way. Not necessarily a very obvious way, it can be quite oblique, but it needs to have some sort of relevance to, to, to the story itself. Um, and once I have that, then yes, they do begin to, to, to take on a bit of life. And once I start writing about them, I, again, for me, it's very much a process of discovery. You know, I know something about them, but as, as I write, I get to know more about them. And they, and they, and they, well, you know, with, with luck, they, they, they tell me what they want and they, 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 it becomes about what they would say, not what I'm making them say. And I think, you know, again, that's, that's part of the excitement. Yeah, it's interesting. And it's funny because I think, you know, um, one of the things that's interesting about doing this show is speaking with so many different writers. And and I, I think everyone sort of has their, their own unique approach. And like for me, for example, like I'm a big for – for the story to crystallize in my mind, I really need to know what the tone of the story is. Like I always start with tone. Mm which is kind of like in a way kind of the opposite of what you're saying, which is that you kind of let the, the, the story and the characters de de develop the tone. And for whatever reason, that's just the way my brain works. And I think the takeaway from that for new writers is like, and, and, and please feel free to, you know, talk about this. It's like, you have to kind of go with whatever, whatever way gets you uh, creating something. And, and if that's like finding the tone first, or if that's finding the characters first, or if that's, uh, outlining something like you have to kind of go with what drives you to to create i mean is that you know what i mean i don't want to oversimplify it but in a way i think you've talked about find you know you've talked when in your advice to writers i've 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 read this before from you said is um you always want to uh, pick your most creative time to write as a write you know as a writer yeah. and 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 i know you're big on finishing what you start and i just but i also think it's like in a way it's like pick your own starting point for mm -hmm. creatively like if that's tone, it's tone. If it's uh, if it's a bunch of kind of thrown together ideas, then it's that kind of m begins to mesh into a blobby type <laughs> plot structure. Mm -hmm. Then it's that. Or if it's outlining, it's outlining. But what is you what what advice have you given to writers in the past when it comes to like getting you know besides ask Joe Lansdale's get your ass in the chair advice? Yeah. You know, what advice do you give to writers who are like, look, I need I have you know I've started fifteen different novels and I've never finished them. I've started, you know, all these short stories and never finished them. What advice do you give to writers who are struggling kind of getting out of the gate? Oh, well, yeah, that, that's a terrible one, isn't it? But I think, you know, all you can do is, well, I mean, I, I have to say whenever I give advice to writers, I always say, you know, try this and, and see if it works. I mean, I don't think you can ever say to them, you must do this. I think that's uh, that, that can never be true for all writers. But for me, certainly, do your absolute best to work on it every day because the more you don't, the more the more you're likely to feel even less like it the next time you try and do it. If you see what I mean. So I mean, I, I'm I'm I mean, but I, you know, I've got the luxury, and it is a luxury in a way. In another way, it's a compulsion. But you know, I write every day um, when I'm writing a new piece, and you know, I'm here at this desk by about I don't know, certainly by six in the morning. I'm I'm writing. Um, but but you know if you if you obviously not everybody can do that you know you've got a day job you can't you can't but but if you could possibly find 
space each day to to work even a little bit on what you're writing until you've finished it. I, I genuinely do think you've got a better chance of finishing it. And for me, you know, just waiting till you're inspired is not a good idea because, you know, basically, do remember, you can always rewrite. You know, even if what you're doing in the first draft feels, you know, awkward and clumsy and, 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 and turgid and, you know, like hacking bits out of a, a, a lump of rock. Um, <laughs> I, I tend to find that those, those times when, I've, you know, when it's felt like that for me, when I go back and reread the entire first draft, I can't necessarily even spot which bits those were. So the work you know, pays off ultimately. And it may feel like that to you at the time, but it may not read like that to you when you come back to reread it. Um, so I, I would just say basically keep at it and, and until until it's done. That's, that's the only way I can think of. Yeah, and and, and I know we're, we're running out of time, so I just want to quickly address, because it's, it's interesting to me, is the rewriting process. And you talk a lot about rewriting, and I think one of the things that you mentioned to writers is <laughs> get ready to enjoy, or learn to enjoy rewriting and learn to enjoy editing. And I think that's such a huge part because rewriting in a way is, I mean, it is, it's writing. It, 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 it's, um, and, it, and, you know, everyone has different different versions of that. Again, it's also unique, but, like, there are, there are writers who, uh, that first draft, like again, bringing up Joe Lansdale, he talks about, you know, he writes 500 words and then he goes back and rewrites those 500 words until he, they're perfect. And then he begins oh. to understand the next whatever 500 words. And I think, and so his first drafts are pretty complete. Yes. And then you have people who have vomit drafts, you know, uh, or okay. it, where it's just like, I'm just getting the whole thing out and then I'm going to go back and, and rework the prose and, and rework the plot and the structure points. Where do you fall in the rewriting and in, in the between first draft and the rewriting drafts? Let's, whether it be like shorts or, or novellas or novels, sorry. Well, now, I mean, uh, the, the, the first draft, I do try and get the language right. You know, I do try to get as much right as possible, but only in terms of the first writing of it. You know, I will, I'll, I'll leave, you know, I may do make the occasional little uh, emendation or, you know, suggestion to myself to, to, to uh, that maybe this phrase would be better here than the one I've used. But I, I, I'm not a rewriter. Um, until the entire thing's done, um, because I want to get a complete sense of the the shape of it, you know, and, and everything that's there. Well, I, know, I didn't know Joe, I didn't realize Joe did that. My old friend Bob Shaw, the science fiction writer, he used to do that. Every he'd finish a chapter of a novel, and then he would rewrite that before he would go on to the next chapter. Now, for me, that wouldn't work simply because um, there, there may be things that suggest themselves later on that make me need to go back and change stuff, you know. So I, I don't want to feel that the, the earlier material is, is fixed somehow, because it may not be. Um, so what I'll do, I'll, 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 I mean, I, I'm all, I just have to say this is just me, but I always write the first draft longhand, you know, pen and paper, pen and ink. Um, and then rewrite onto the computer. I mean, having reread the first draft, I'll then get to the computer and rewrite. And a completely different, I mean, it's hard because the, the reread, I'll tend to say, you know, well, this bit isn't too bad and this bit needs work, but I don't quite know how to do it. And I get a general sense that, you know, that certainly rewriting is necessary. When I get to the computer, though, and start actually rewriting onto the screen, completely different mindset comes into play and I become 
I mean, I, I, again, you say I enjoy this, but I become completely ruthless with it. And the more I can get rid of or improve, the better. And everything in the first draft is now up for grabs. Now, it wasn't always so with me, you see. There was a time when I would attempt to keep as much as possible of the first draft in the final version. These days, I'll attempt to improve as much as possible in the first draft into the final version. I mean, I don't know where that turning point was, but I think it was very important. I think the sooner you reach that, you as a writer, the better. Well, as you become more professional of a professional writer, meaning you're getting published a lot more, I'm sure you're probably more comfortable saying like, you're not holding every word and phrase is so mm -hmm. sacred. You know, you're probably getting more like, I just need to tell you know, the story the right way. And if that means losing this wonderful paragraph that I, <laughs> that I wrote about, about, you know, uh, the color of rats for then so be it. Um, and okay. So one thing I want to, and as I just mentioned the longhand thing before we wrap is like, uh, I think that's interesting. Like I, uh, I know, um, writers, like I know John Langan, uh, Tim Wagner, uh -huh. Those are guys who write longhand first, and, and then they then they go to the computer. And I, I think in, in yourself, obviously, it says I could never personally do that. I think I would go insane if I had to. First of all, I can't read my own writing, but having <laughs> to write and then go. Uh, but but it forces you in a way to kind of pace yourself, right? Because you can't type a hundred words a minute. You, mm -hmm. You're writing it out longhand. I wonder if that affects like you know the the pace or the beat, but. It's a, it's fascinating, and I almost wonder too if like before computers, like when you were typing. When yep. so, sorry, I don't mean to I don't mean to age you, but but when there was just typewriters, um, yeah. was it was it the same way? You still wrote longhand first, and then you would type it out. Yes, yes, that's that's absolutely right. But I think it's probably true to say that I didn't rewrite as much back in those days as I do now. And maybe the computer is part of the you know having encouraged me to to to, to, to rewrite more. I really don't know about that. But well, yes, I did, still did it back then. Yeah. Well, it's so much less work now. You can move stuff around and take stuff out and put it back in, and it's like you don't have to retype the whole page and red ink it. So I want to leave on. I want to leave. I want to leave the chat on this because I think it's such a great. Um, quote that you you talked and this is kind of going back a little bit to what we talked about earlier but but I, if you could touch on this because i just i just yep. love this line which is you talk about you want horror to be you want horror that enriches the imagination rather than work as a substitute for yep. the imagination and we talked a little bit about that and but i think that's such an amazing line because it it really does it, it, it you know sim overly simplified it's you're so much you're it's so much more powerful to let a reader imagine what you're, what what's in the room, what's in the closet, what's under the bed, than it is to overly describe it. But what else? Could, what else? What other meaning do you have behind that? Like horror that enriches versus is a substitute for the imagination. Well, you know, the substitute thing is, you know, the kind of fiction that reads like, a, you know, a medical journal or, or, or an account of an autopsy, you know, it's uh, item by item, you know, <laughs> viscera by viscera. Whereas, you know, I think, the, I mean, obviously you can get um, graphic horror that is kind of, you know, enriching. We, we've, we've mentioned Clive, Clive Barker. Um, but I guess the one that, that, that I, I think it still comes back to that whole sense of reaching, reaching for the heights, if you like. However, however you do it in terms of the, the you know the prose, the poetry of the prose, or, or or the imagery, you know, and or simply this kind of image that lodges in the mind and, and grows in it. Um, I suppose, in a way, you know, one thing for me is, and this is true of all fiction for me, all good fiction and criticism is. It makes you look again at things you've taken for granted. Um, I guess that's what I try to do. 
Uh, yeah, that's amazing. And uh, yeah, and it's such a wonderful way to write. And um, and you know, I think of like I think of guys like Reggie Oliver, and I think of Aikman, and I think of these guys who are able to really disturb. Um, well, uh, Ramsey, thank you so much for for sharing all this wonderful um, these thoughts on writing and your process. And uh, folks, you should definitely go out and pick up uh, Ramsey's newest from Flame Tree Press, Fellstones. And, uh, and Ramsey, thank you again for being here on our last uh, season episode of The Dark Road. I really appreciate you taking the time. Philip, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And to you guys who are listening, uh, this is a wrap on season two of The Dark Word. I hope you've enjoyed all of the guests that we've had this season and in season one. And uh, good luck with all of your future projects. Keep writing, keep at it. And until next time on The Dark Word. Hey guys, it's Philip again. I wanted to let you know that you can buy any of the books discussed on The Dark Word at The Bookhouse, which is Book and Film Globe's independent bookstore. Go to thebookhousemilburn.com, that's M-I-L-L-B-U-R-N.com to shop online and support small independent booksellers. Or visit the actual store in Milburn, New Jersey, where you can buy books from all the authors we feature here on The Dark Word or the Book and Film Globe podcast. Audio Hub.